Hello, I'm Jennifer Closter and we're in the book cave. Today I'm delighted to welcome author extraordinaire, Australian icon and writer across many genres, the wonderful Margaret Clark. Margaret, welcome to the book cave. Thank you, Jennifer. That's a beautiful welcome. Thank Great. You. It's really wonderful to have you here. Well, Margaret, you've written over 300 books. So yes, somehow with two fingers because <laughs> I can't type. <laughs> really? With two fingers? To type. Oh, fantastic. Mm. You've had a, you're having a lot because it's not over yet. But so far you've had a long and illustrious career. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you began writing back in the 1980s. And was your first novel Pugwell? That's the first novel I'd ever written and it was accepted. And I thought, gee, this is easy, isn't it? <laughs> and I thought, oh, right, and they bought the second novel and, I th- and then they both became movies mm. um, and I got a fair bit of money for them and it was really good. Um, and then I thought, oh, right, okay, this is easy, I'll just drop being a teacher and I'll do this. And after that, things sort of went a bit downhill and I never made another movie again. <laughs> That's the challenge of the dream run mm. at the beginning, isn't it? Because mm. you then can be led to think, well, this is this is how it works every time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so easy. And but it wasn't, of course. No, of course not. So tell us about that. I mean, you've written this, an extraordinary number of books across a range of genres from mm-hmm. primary school, even kindergarten age, mm-hmm. primary school, middle school, high school, young adult, and I would what perhaps would be called new adult slightly grittier, harder subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you do that? I mean, that's extraordinary. Uh, well, I suppose, first of all, I've got a big imagination. Um, and I'm always, I was also lucky to have uh, been a primary school teacher, so I knew that age group. Um, and the series I did, which was called uh, Mango Street, were based on me as a child at Manifold Heights Primary School. Oh. So Mango Mano, because it used to be Mano. Yes. Um, and a lot of the characters that I knew in school then became characters in books except I changed their names and changed what they looked like. So if someone had red hair and green eyes, they turned into brown hair and brown eyes and their name changed so people can't sue me. <laughs> but... Yeah, the characters, the richness of the characters from my childhood were um, a lot of those primary age books, the junior books. And um, a books like Egg, for example, I just got the idea. Oh, there, there's Egg. There's um, Egg's Cup. Yeah, and you did a whole series of Egg books. That's right. We've got this wonderful covers. There for um, younger children with um, Bettina Guthridge did these brilliant illustrations. Yeah. But I just got the idea for that you know, eating an egg. And I thought, what if the egg could jump up and run around and have adventures and off we went. So, you know, just I think it's, it's you've got to have a slightly um, weird imagination. Um, and with a lot of the uh, teenage books, so based on my own children, so um, Living with Leanne should have been called Living with Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Um, and the horror books are the same. Things happen and you just put a weird twist on it. Like when I was a, a kid, um, we had a beach house down the coast and we'd hear this thumping in the roof. Yeah. Dad, Dad, there's something, something, you know, something in the roof. Dad, Dad, I'll be quiet, go to sleep. And then, you know, thump, thump, thump. In the roof. Dad, Dad, there's a murderer living in the roof. Shut up or I'll murder you, you know. And in the end, Dad got up and had a look because we kept nagging and it was bats, little bats flying around and hitting the walls as they were going out. Which is where we get bat attack. That's right. And so instead of little bats flying around, you have some children who come home from school and they've got a letter from some dead person they didn't know. Some rich aunties left them a huge mansion and $50 million, but all they've got to do is go and live there with the family for a year. Oh, beautiful. So they take off and they go to this mansion and in the middle of the night they hear thump, thump, thump in the roof. Dad, Dad, there's somebody in the roof. Be quiet, go to sleep. <laughs> Dad, Dad, there's a murderer living in the roof. Be quiet or I'll murder you. And so the kids end up taking the power and going up and looking and there's all these giant human-sized bats hanging upside down waiting for a slither of light to come from the moon and they'll all rise up and go and suck out the blood of everyone who lives <laughs> on the earth. See, very easy. <laughs> Okay, so 
I, I get the imagination and, 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 and the, obviously, you know, you've got these ideas and things, but it's all very well. Lots of people have imagination and have stories, but writing them down is another thing, isn't it? Well, yes, um, especially to finger typists. Um, yeah, I guess you've got to be persistent and I've had a lot of discussion with a lot of other authors and we all work very differently. Yes. So some people, for example, Isabel Carmody will map things out and, or she used to do, and put it on, you'd go to a place and people sort of map down on the wall, that's happening, that's happening, that might happen, etc. And other people keep notebooks and some people start in the beginning, like they write the middle first and it becomes the start or round the other way. And I used to just sit down and write. And as soon as I'd done my first word, I'd say, Ray, I've started. I've only got 20,000 more words to write. Well, um, <clears throat> or whatever. But um, once you've started, I think you, you can get going. People often never start. And this is the problem. They're going to be a world-famous writer, but they've actually never started. Right. Um, and, of course, you've got to get the middle and the end and all that stuff. But <laughs> it all happens. Yeah. So how much of your day do you spend writing when you're when – you're, you know, you've written so many books, you know, there's just hundreds of them, literally, um, of all different lengths. Mm. So tell us a little bit about your working day. Well, my working day now is not as frenetic as it was right? because I was determined to keep writing. As a, a lot of series were very popular in those days when I was writing a few years ago. Um, and so to do a series, of course, you've got to keep the ideas coming, you've got to keep producing a book a year right. and then when you're doing about four series you've got about four books and then you're trying to do some other ones so yeah so um but were you doing them in parallel those series well usually in parallel um there really? might have been four there was a horror series there was the sugar uh, chickabee series um there was a series for boys um footy shorts boxer shorts all those there was the animal series and yeah they were more or less all coming along in parallel and one year I remember I actually wrote 15 books. That was the year that I, my husband decided we were getting divorced and so I sort of threw myself into my work and just wrote and wrote and wrote. But some of those were only little books, little chapter books, which may, might have been 6,000 words, but some of them were. But even so, so what's your working day look like? When you're in the thick of doing that, say, how, first of all, how many hours a day do you think you were writing? Oh, sometimes. I usually write in the morning. I get up early and write because I do my best stuff in the morning. Yeah. And then I might have a break and then I might write, you know, in the afternoon. I didn't usually do a lot of writing at night. But I remember, for example, I was trying to finish a book. I'd taken myself down to the beach house and I was writing a book called Hold My Hand or Else and it took me two weeks of working really hard and not stopping. So I'd get up in the morning at 6, write like mad, um, grab some breakfast, take the dog for a walk, come back, write like mad, um, have some lunch, take the dog for a walk, <laughs> write again, go and stand in the store, have a cup of coffee, come back, write like mad. And then I'd write. I was writing then into the night and I, my shoulders were that sore. Oh, yeah. I was so sore across here. And uh, I'd often write myself into a corner because I hadn't planned it. I think I was just writing it and um, all sort of making up as I went along. And I'd back myself into a corner sometimes. I wouldn't know where I was going, right, bedtime. And I wouldn't think about it. I wouldn't try and think about it at all. I would try and um, just let my subconscious work on it while yes. I was asleep. Yeah. Then I'd get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, sit at the um, computer and off I'd go again. And it had just sort of come out like, yeah. I've tried writing things and planning it and it often doesn't work for me. Right. Um, although, as I explained to kids in school, if I'm, I'm doing writing workshops, the, some people need to plan everything out right from the word go. Yeah. Other people like me need to write um, and then at some point you have to stop because you then need to make decisions. Are you going to continue writing this in first person or third person? Are you going to change it to past tense or present tense? Um are you going to go in this direction, that direction? So you, at that point when I've written something is when I need to do some a bit of planning. But often the planning sort of goes out the window when I keep going. 
So, okay, so just going back to when you're writing those multiple series in a year, how mm. then – so that's great. That's All the working long, day. Writing. But how then did you did you do – Part one book in one day or for one week and then switch to the next series the next week or did you complete the series and then write the new series? I'd usually do one book of the series yeah, um, and send it off. I wasn't really good on doing drafts either. I was a bit, I wouldn't say lazy, but often I couldn't see for the wood for the trees. So I'd write it, send it away, and then I needed a very good editor or a very good publisher who was an editor. A lot of I was very lucky to have some very, very good people who understood how I worked. Yes. And then they'd get stuck into it and say, you know, this sentence is too long, fix this. Another time in a teenage book I was dressing somebody and they wrote in the, um, it was Mark McLeod wrote Pearl Lees in the margin. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't know what they're wearing. And I said, get you, you've got two teenage girls, they can dress them. So they dressed the characters in the manuscript. Now, that really surprises me, Margaret, because when you read your young adult fiction, No Fat Chicks, for example, Bad Girl, Back on Track, which is just a remarkable book, mm. and I can see why it was such a bestseller, mm. the sense that you, you gain as a reader is that you are completely cognizant and au fait with that world mm. of of the teenager, that you understand that you're you're one of them, that you're there. You know, the language, mm. the look, at least mm. to me, appears to be uh, from someone who really gets it. But now you're sort of saying that, you With know. With the clothing, no. Okay. So, <laughs> well, so, look how I'm dressed. I mean, I'm not the kind <laughs> of fashion. And um, I'd be thinking that people, like, they're all in jeans and tops, you know, all the time. And, of course, they did wear other things, different styles of jeans, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, yeah, I just said, oh, here, you dress them. So they did. <laughs> okay. But the language that your teenagers speak mm. comes across as really authentic. Mm. So how have you done that? Because I think I become a teenager. I think a whole pile of things happen that I don't quite. Okay, when I'm writing the, the egg books for little kids, I become an egg sort of. When I'm writing um, those horror adventures, I'm in it. And so I'm writing and I be I'm actually I become sort of multiple split personalities because right. I also come become different people as I'm writing. So um yeah. There's a lot of wiring in my brain, I think. Um it's all over the place. So um yeah, I, I sort of I actually become whoever in it. This the back on track one was slightly different because I worked in an alcohol and drug centre and I worked with street kids. Yeah. For about ten years. And so these were characters I really knew. Um, changed their names, of and course, all the of rest course. Of it, but, but but clearly based on real people. Yeah, and and based and on real issues. Going to have meetings with street kids and getting them to come to the meetings, and I think the only reason that we were really successful with some of these kids who had warrants out on them and all sorts of stuff was um, I had a very very good youth worker at the um, city of Greater Geelong. And she was just brilliant. And also, I seem to have the knack of, um, I don't know, getting on with people, connecting with, with them. people. You get and a sense of that in your writing, that you mm. have that understanding and an empathy. Mm. But this is a pretty gritty book. I mean... Mm. When I wrote it at the time, it was even grittier because there hadn't been anything really, apart from Go Ask Alice, um, yeah. that was similar. Has this sold overseas as well? Yes, it's sold in, I don't know. 20 or 30 countries in different yeah, languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really interested because obviously you're dealing with issues of homelessness, you know, drug, um, mm. rape, you know, all sorts of abuse and uh, really serious issues. And you, you actually have a character who comes in and talks about the developing underclass in Australia. Now, you wrote this over 20 years ago. Mm. But the issues are still here. Yes, they didn't get solved. I thought that with this book maybe people would take some notice and start fixing things and it got worse. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Can you fix things, these sorts of things? I think we could do a better job than we're doing. Um, I mean, this has really got some really just very challenging, shocking, you know, this young woman is raped, gang raped twice. A lot of people I think are in crisis. <laughs> There's um, people like Parents out of work, um, parents disenfranchised, pe parents splitting up, people 
um, you know, mixed blended families, mm-hmm. and some of them are fabulous and they're working out fantastically. And I admire people who are trying to bring up kids on their own, whether it's a father or a mother with mm-hmm. kids. I think it's a damn hard job. And it, to I know bringing up our own, we needed two of us on the ball and mm-hmm. agreeing the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, when you look at a lot of these characters from that world, um, some of them. There was a couple that come from very good families and they'd just gone yeah. off the rails. Yeah. Um, a couple of them had come from families where the parents had split up and they didn't even know where their mother was or their father was and that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's still around. and I, I'm not even sure how we do fix it. I think there's... I think we need to put more energy and more money and more help into homeless people. Mm. Um, especially mentally ill people. Mm. I think we're not doing enough for mentally ill people when the big institutions closed and people just got thrown out onto the street. Um, they don't feel safe. We don't feel safe and mm. something mm. has to be done. And if ever one win millions of dollars, I'll do something. Um, but yeah, I think we've, we could improve a lot on this area. And then therefore also we can improve a lot on helping young people with their families. Um, more counsellors. I don't like to use the word counsellors. More, more advocates is probably the word I would right, like. Right, right. Could you write this book now? Would it be different if you wrote it now? Oh, good question. No, it would be the same, except the drugs would be different. We'd have more ice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think. Do you think the language has changed? Young a little oh, some of the some of the slang terms and mm. idioms may have some of the drug names may have too, but a lot of it's still the same, um, which is why that book's still yeah still um, selling selling and very powerful. It is but, um, very powerful, and of course they'd all have mobile phones now. Yes, they'd have mobile phones. They'd be texting each other. Mm. Um, they'd still be living in squats. They'd still mm. be doing those sort of things. And they'd still be doing unsafe practices and shooting up with shared needles and somebody having an asthma attack and they wouldn't know what to do, which was what our job was trying to teach them, simple health things and how to get help eating properly and doing all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's, it was a strange world. I can remember going to the first meeting and the Street kids had sent along a couple of representatives or they decided they'd represent, they decided they'd turn up. Um, and the guy said to me, what do you want? I said, I'll clean you up, send you to church on Sunday. And he looked at me and, you know, come on. Um, anyway, we got some sandwiches in and stuff. And oh, we were up in the old courthouse, actually, Yeah, upstairs. And um, he opened his bag. He had like a carry like a school bag, carry bag thing, and lifted out this little pup. And so the pup's trotting around and we were all talking and then we climbed out on the – they went to climb out the window and sit on the roof. And, oh, right, so I climbed out the window and sit on the roof. Wall, sitting, and then came back to pup and weed all over the floor and done a poo. Then it threw up. And this tough kid with a warrant out <laughs> goes, oh, I need a bag, goes green. Oh, oh, oh. I said, oh, don't worry, I'll clean it up. I'm used to cleaning up vomit and poo. Oh. Just don't worry about it. And from then on, like, I was his best friend. Yes. And the same as this other boy was, it's in the book, was sitting next to me at this other meeting we had because then we thought, oh, we'll have another meeting and we thought only two or three had come, but the word had got around. Um, and we had 15 arrive, we had enough food for them, we're getting pizzas and coke. I said, don't worry, I'll pay for it, we'll just send out for more stuff. So I'm sitting next to this boy and he had this nice long clean hair and the next minute I see this little pink nose come out. <gasps> The hair and a little face and look around. The rat. The rat. Because <laughs> it was sort of living yeah. on his shoulder. And I said, oh, cute rat or nice rat or something. And he looked at me and the rat looked at me and he put his – I was sitting like this yeah. and he put his what, right hand down next to me and he, the rat ran down and he said, she'll only go to me, she never goes to anybody else. So I looked, the rat, rat looked at me and the rat went – Wow, and that was it. So he knew. I was I was queen of the yeah. <laughs> queen of the street kids by letting a rat crawl up my hand. So I learned very quickly with different ways you connect. could connect. Yeah, that's not in a textbook. 
No. Well, I can see that. <laughs> and then you also deal with really well with issues of kind of gender, mm. you know, particularly you're a voice, I think, a strong voice for females, mm-hmm. for girls and young women. And you do it, I think, famous for five minutes very cleverly with mm. humour and it's a slow uh, education for mm. um, Peter, Peter Nutt, yes. Peanut. I love the nut family, chestnut, walnut, (laughs) peanut. It's just great. Um, But I I actually found that that I wasn't expecting that. So it was sort of a surprise evolution that came. And then he did. He was really good at understanding um, how, because he dresses up as a girl, Mm. so Mm. he can be the lead guitarist in the band. Yeah, because they need girls. We have to have gender equity. Gender equity, which is is great. It sometimes drives kids mad, but anyway, that's what we had to have. And then again with the no fat chicks. That was a book written out of anger. Yeah. And tell and us yet about it's funny. that, Margaret. Tell us about. No okay. Fat chicks. Well, I got the idea for that driving up the Melbourne Road, and I was behind this car that was was summertime, and there was guys with those cutout singlets, and you know, and they're driving along, and suddenly this beer can comes flying out, <sighs> and, uh, you know, onto the road. And on their bumper bar, they had this bumper bumper bar sticker and it said, no fat chicks. And I was just boiling mad and I thought, how dare you? And I sort of went, sort of zooming past them, glaring at them and they're going, you know, I was half drunk on the road. Um, and that's where I, I just got so angry and it was the idea came from a bumper bar sticker. I said, how dare you, you great fat slobs, who'd want to yeah. go with you anyway? Yeah. Like, and I was, yeah, I just got, so sometimes I'll get angry yeah. and the anger is disguised in humour because it's no good bashing people over the head with a with a verbal mallet saying, you know, we've got to change, we've got to fix the world, um, we've got to have equality, gender equity, da-da-da. You just get them offside. But you can often get people around by using some humour, even though it's not supposed to be a funny book, but there's a lot of humour in it. It's got a lightness. It's a light, There's a lightness of touch, I think. Mm. And the other thing is I think of any author I've ever read, you are the one who has the most realistic endings in your oh, novels. Oh, thanks. <laughs> like, you know, even because obviously, you know, something like Back on Track, which is really hard and gritty, you kind of wanted to connect with her, you know, her dad who's mm. left when she was a kid and maybe her siblings who she hasn't seen since she was little but of course, that, that isn't the happy ending because that's not what the book is. Well, it can't. No, it can't. Well, and it could this happen, one, but it'd be unrealistic. Yeah, which is a surprising book too, mm-hmm. with a really clever premise. Um, you know, the, it, it's inconclusive mm. what what happens to her in the end. Mm. A big journey of discovery again, and and even this, which is very funny and has a lot of really good moments, um, again a, a really kind of. Very realistic but satisfying ending. You mm-hmm. know, I think um, you're very masterful on endings, Margaret. I like doing endings. I don't like books that leave you hanging up in the air too mm-hmm. much, um, although R.L. Stein did them very cleverly by saying, like, oh, the purple oh, the ooze coming out of the thing. Series. Purple ooze coming out of the wall and then that was the end of the – oh, no, it's happening again, <laughs> so you're ready to buy the next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very clever at doing that. Um, I had tr- big trouble – being very honest in one ending in a book called Care Factor Zero. I don't know whether you've got it. No, I don't have it. I wanted to. Probably on there somewhere. But yeah. anyway, it was another realistic book written when I was in the Alcohol and Drug Centre about a true person, a girl who had sort of mental health issues. And the time that it's written in the book where this girl comes at the person with a nail and she's going to shove it into her hand and actually I was the person with the hand getting the nail. But anyway, um, and, and she didn't, she dropped it on the floor and fell on the floor crying. But um, to me, there was only one true way of ending the, that story, which is what she had done, which was commit suicide. And you're not allowed to have people commit suicide in books Um especially in the American market because people don't commit suicide in America, apparently. So um, there was a huge furor about the ending. The publisher wanted to leave it how I had it because what I was trying to show was she had opportunities to get help. There was a caseworker helping her. Friends were helping her. She found some other responsible adults who would have helped her, um, but she turned her back on them and was 
almost going to get some help and then decided, no, it's all too hard, um, something happens, I don't want to say because I want people, you know, to read the book, but right near the end something happens, it, it could have gone that way or that way and right. it went that way. Yeah. Then um, we had an offer from America that they wanted to publish the book but had to change the ending or they wouldn't publish oh, it. Right. So my publisher and I sort of looked at each other and I said, well, this was about a year and a half later. I'd got worn down, browbeaten and tired from people sort of blaming me for having this ending that, oh, it should have been a happy ending. And I was, well, right, just do it, just change it. So we did. We changed that she did turn to somebody and get help. Which yes. could have happened yes, in, sure, real, sure. in the other version, but I just wanted to. Well, it was it, it, your experience was the darker ending. It didn't have to be dark. No. Is what I was trying to show. Right. Um, yes, maybe maybe some of the people who were helping could have tried harder, or maybe she could have tried harder, or maybe something else could have happened to change her mind. Um, or maybe she was mentally ill and it was never going to work out. We don't know because um, in real life she did. Well, the thing about suicide too is that it can be the decision of a moment, but once you've made it and done it, there's no coming back from it. Mm. So that's often I think I'm sure that there are plenty of people who have committed suicide who reg- would, if they was, would Here, regret, would regret it, it, yes, and and would in an, in another make a different decision. But it's interesting that that the American publishers did that because we've had that very successful series from the book Thirteen Reasons Why, which has been so huge as a mm. series on Netflix, and people have been completely compelled by it mm. that they're making a second series, and that's timing. about yeah. It's it, called timing. Yeah. I was too early. I was too yeah. advanced for my time. I was too advanced. For well, even this one, yes, yes, um, a bit advanced. This one now, of course, with all this gender and yes. transgender and all well, this stuff, people will be getting the wrong idea anyway and think he was chan- transgendering, and he it was it was even, nothing to do with that. It even was, Pugwall, which came out in 1987, I think, he watches a gender transition documentary mm, in Pugwall, mm. and I just think you're very prescient in a lot of your books, Margaret. I it's, think I was too ahead of my time. Well, in some of them. Well, maybe. Well, maybe they're just all. Which getting, is why I got into some trouble. They'll get. Um, a, <laughs> well, you certainly wouldn't now because these sorts of oh, things no, are much no, more. Oh no, no, I mean now it's all quite tame. About. Well, actually, that leads me, of course, to the uh, the chocolate bar, which of course is a delicious play on words, if I might make that pun too, um, about a, 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 a kids from school, their year groups going on camp, and they're not allowed to take any chocolates or sweets mm, or lollies yeah. or anything unhealthy but again you wrote this very early on mm-hmm. and of course you pro- could you write this now yes you could I mean, write the same well you could write the same premise that um when you try and ban something immediately especially with young people they want to try do yeah. it or whatever so it was actually quite a uh, I don't want to say clever or I sat up myself, but um, it was a take on, because I was working in an alcohol and drug centre, about banning drugs right. and what happens when you actually ban something as you send it underground, everyone wants to get hold of it. Now, on the other hand, I'm not saying you should have illicit drugs all over the place, no. but we, the big problem is how do you stop people using something? How do you stop people experimenting? And they get more interested in doing if you ban it. So they're all going off to school camp. There's no lollies, no chocolates, and they're going to get them there somehow. Yeah, and not only that, but you also uh, point to the fact that people are going to profit from them. Mm-hmm. It's going to be profiteering. That's right. So, of course, they set up the whole, you know, um, where you need to be $5 or $10 or $20 for the for chocolate a, bar. For that chocolate might cost, frog. Yeah, for a chocolate frog. It might only cost a dollar. And what's that parallel yeah. to? It's parallel to the drug world and a list of drugs and the price goes up if yeah. there's a scarcity. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's about human behaviour. It's a whole, um, I suppose, a, a whole panorama of human behaviour when you put people into a false situation, such as a school camp where Mm. mum and dad aren't there and everybody's, you know, supposed to be having fun. And you've got, again, the characters. You've you've got the greedy person, you've got the entrepreneur, you've got the nerd, you've got, you know, there's all these characters and they've all got their part to play. Mm. 
Well, then on a much lighter note, of course, we've got the gorgeous The Chickabees <laughs> series. <laughs> yes. So now this is um, primary school, yes. uh, grade sort of five. Oh, I'd say middle. Middle. Primary, junior primary. So not, three, grade three and four sort of. Oh, maybe a even. few five and six. I don't like to put an age no. on, on people because everyone's different. different. You know, you can get um, you could get a, a person in a secondary school wanting to read it because it's it's res- having a resonation with um, maybe their own desire to be famous and get a girl girl group and yeah, and then it can be little kids, you know, like oh they want to be famous too. So if you're a good reader and you're eight, seven, or whatever, um, you know, you'd enjoy that because it's. But if you're older, you're still going to enjoy it. It's it's. It crosses it crosses age boundaries, I think, that little series. So you certainly keep up with the times, I must say. Mm. You know, you, you you obviously have a an ear to the ground of uh, popular culture mm. and and different age groups. I find it extraordinary that you're able to write across so many age mm. groups. Um, because, you know, you did the whole Aussie Nibbles and the Aussie Bites series, mm-hmm. which um are great fun. Now these are for younger children again. Well, fast grandma is oh yeah, younger children again. I'll be five, six, seven, depending on whether people are good readers or not. And guess what? Who fast grandma is sort of based on? Could you possibly guess? Could it be <laughs> Margaret Clark? Sort of. <laughs> oh, you know, my grandchildren used to just cringe because we'd get oh. to somewhere and um, all the other grandmas was it says in there. All the other grandmas and grandpas are sitting reading their books and drinking their cups of yeah. tea and minding the bags. But their grandma's tearing down the tunnel of terror in her bathers and getting and bowling a and doing all the yeah, fabulous things and expecting the kids to do it with Jumping them. on a yeah. skateboard and yeah, come on, yeah. let's go. <laughs> Which I think is great. And I'm sure as your grandchildren get older or grew older that they would appreciate you more and more oh, for being willing to do those things. might be... Happy to have adventure. We call me adventure grandma or inappropriate oh. grandma. They, oh. also, they sing a song inappropriate grandma. Ho, ho, ho. Inappropriate oh. grandma. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> We've got an inappropriate grandma. So is there another grandma book coming then? Uh, do you think? I haven't actually done another grandma book. I should do. I'm actually thinking I really should do a, a grandma series mm. and then because I'm a grandma and there's all these kids um, because they've all got friends, and so I've got a whole lot of different characters and different. Yes, and yes. I've got a different role to play now. I'm, I could be grandma. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. I was going to go one called Slow Grandpa because I did Fast Grandma, and I said, no, everyone's going to take it the wrong way. I'll end up with more gender problem. How dare you say grandpas are slow? Oh, forget it. Okay. And then, of course, you've done your incredible Aussie Angels series. Mm. This one, Sheila the Healer. Which again, based on my own dog. Oh, beautiful! Oh, she's died. Blue now, healer. Yeah. Wow. Um. So, you've been writing for what, over thirty years. Well, Pugwell Pug came was... out in nineteen eighty-seven. So, that's... so I must have written Pugwell in nineteen eighty-six, I suppose, or nineteen eighty-five. Just trying to remember. So I've been writing books for that long, but I used to write stories for the Woman's Day and the Woman's Weekly when the kids were little. Oh. I used to um, hop in the playpen so they wouldn't annoy me with the typewriter because I didn't have a computer then and let the kids rampage around the house wrecking it while I was going, you know, he looked into her eyes, I'm Mona, I love you, she said, whatever. And um, yeah, <laughs> write short stories to make some money because, you know, I, I was a stay-at-home mum at that stage. Yes, yes. So that's an extraordinary uh, span of a career. So what's changed in the publishing world in that time? A lot of cha- a lot of things have changed. I think one thing that really changed for books was when um, a particular politician crossed the floor and GST went on books, um, which then made it difficult at the time for schools to buy a lot of books because the librarians would only have so much money, then they would buy the books. Mm. I'm talking maybe um, oh, English teachers or whoever. Would have a, and then they would pay for the books, and then the the GST would be reimbursed later. But they didn't actually have that cash in hand, so that made a, a huge difference to book sales. Then I don't know whether the systems changed as much now. Um, and then, of course, electronic books came into being, and everyone was going to have Kindles, and everyone's going to not have. Pa- we're going to be paperless, and um, publishers got a bit antsy about all that, 
and weren't sure where we were going, what we were doing, what we should do. Um, then a few people got sued for writing interesting things. and Oh, such as what? Tell us about that. Oh, um, well, I can I can put, well, we didn't quite, oh, okay, we don't want to name names, but we can do me. So when I wrote oh, one of those teenage books, uh, I don't know, which one was it? It might have been back on track. Now I can't remember. Yeah. One of them. Uh, might have been. Anyway, um, at the time my daughter was uh, a manager in Maya and she used to see the kids coming in and shoplifting and what they would do was one or two would create a diversion and do something else and, you know, have a hissy fit or knock something over or start carrying on. Yeah. So the attention all went to them while everyone else was filling rucksacks and bags with stuff. So I put that in the book and the next thing I got a phone call from Random House saying Random House was getting sued. Um, I was sort of on the edge of being sued and but Random House was and by Maya because we were teaching kids how to shoplift. And oh. so um, this is just an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was like, oh, crumbs. So then, you know, they were, they'd removed the book from the shelves and now Random House was biting its finger, their fingernails um, because they wanted to be sued. And luckily somebody with a brain must have looked at it and said, look, nobody's going to learn how to shoplift reading this. I mean, everyone already knows how to do this stuff. Yeah, There's no, yeah. no big news to No teenagers. cause and effect, yeah, no, from reading, reading your book. No. So then, and um, it's quite possible that the people who are doing the, that sort of shoplifting aren't reading your book anyway. Probably, I don't think they got the book and thought this is how you do it. No. Um, anyway, so some lawyers sort of came to a common sense idea that no, no, it's nothing to do with that, and they dropped the case and the book went back on the shelf. So that's just an example. Yes. But you could understand then that um, the particular publishing house would be then rather nervous about anything that's slightly controversial and there's a lot more things than that that you can get um, into trouble. So um, they started being a bit more cautious about some of the oh, okay. um, material they were publishing for right. a while. Yep. I think they may be taking a few more risks now, I'm not sure. Um, so they sort of went into this like almost nanny state of guardianship of, oh, we better not have that and we better kids would just read this and we'll just have everything all nice and... Um, we won't take the risk, so we're not going to publish quite as much and things got a bit harder. Um, because they were also pulling back and also because there were more little publishing houses starting up, um, it got more complicated. So they didn't seem to have the money to pour into what I called the golden age when I was back, oh, 10, 15 years ago. Yes. Um, where they did big promotions, made big posters, made big book stands with all your books on them. Um, paid for you to go up to Sydney or Brisbane or Darwin and stay in, you know, good hotels and um, paid you money while you were there so you, you know, and you're yes. signing books and book doing tours things. tours and, and marketing. All that. Book Promotion. Tours, doing all those things. The Nestle right around Australia stopped operating. A few other things were closed down that we'd go and work at and go all over Australia and promote reading. Um, teach kids how to write, how to get ideas, what to do with them, all that sort of stuff all seemed to go fuck. And very rarely now, I think, do publishers spend a lot of money touring people. You've mm, got to pay for yourself. Mm, I think that's um, right. And they don't do book launches either. No, I, no, they don't, the way they did. Yeah. And a lot of things like that have affected. Um, but why do you think that is? I suppose they don't have the money now because they're not selling as many books because... Maybe electronic stuff. Maybe people aren't reading as much. If schools are saying they're going paperless, which some schools have, um, okay, oh. where's the books? With actual paper books. Oh. Mm. Books are going, schools have oh, gone paperless. There was a, a school in Melbourne that decided it was going paperless and everybody was going to have computers, a, a well-known school, um, and they were all going to just read from computers and, you know, we're going to gradually get rid of books and paper and the rest and do everything with computers. So, like, that doesn't help the book industry thinking, no. um, well, what are we going to do? Will we publish more books and hope they change their minds? So right now it's much healthier than it was. So we are getting, oh, there was the overseas 
um, market too where we were authors were going to get less money for overseas sales and there was a lot of hassles happening with that. Um, I think that's all been resolved. Right. And um, I'm just trying to think what else. Do you think us. there are more people writing books now? That is possibly possibly true because a lot of them I've never heard of. Um, that doesn't mean they're not really good no, authors. No, no, no. It just means when I'm reading the list of new books coming out or I'm reading um, about who's going to conferences or book launches or who's mm. presenting and I'm thinking I've never heard of half these people. But then you've got to remember I'm older now and you've got to make room for younger ones yes, coming along. Yes, you do. Yeah. And the younger ones are probably writing fresh, interesting, gripping things. Well, are you, you're you're no longer writing young what what's called young adult fiction now. Is that right? I haven't written young adult fiction for a couple of years now. No. Right. And do you think you would again? I mean, the sorts of books that um, you know, the Hunger Games and the Divergent series, for mm. instance, seems there's been this huge appetite for dystopian books. Mm. You mm. know, books about a a, a bleak, difficult, awful mm. future uh, future world. Um, do you think that is that something that you would write if you felt like you were, or do you feel that that's the sort of book you'd need to write? Would you need to write differently as a young adult writer if you were going to write young adult fiction again? Do you um, think? I still think there's a niche market for the family relationship, social mm. relationship kind of books that I was writing and they're still they're getting produced by people and, you know, people are still writing them um, because I don't particularly want to write – well, I suppose I did write science fiction in a way when I wrote the horror books. Oh. Um, they were different. They were well. They were younger too, and they more... were a younger market, and they weren't going to scare you into a, oblivion. They were no. um, well. They weren't about a real fu- a real world sort of future, um, which no. I think a lot of those Hunger Games types, yeah, sorts of books. It's a bit like you know, uh, tomorrow when the war began, when John Marston did that, and it was a, such a huge success. Mm-hmm. It still is a huge success. Um, I, I don't think I, I'm very good at writing bleak stuff, apart from <laughs> suicide. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I've never really tried it. It's never really appealed to me. Um, someone, one of the publishers, wanted me to have a go at. Oh, what were they called? They're like um, cartoons and they're called... Uh, oh, graphic novels. Yeah, that's them. Yeah, yeah. And I had a bit of a go and then I think, well, I don't think it quite worked out. Okay. Um, I think it would be better if I was an illustrator and could... If you're an illustrator and could write at the same time, I think that would probably work out a work bit better, better because then you. you've got someone trying to get into my head to do the illustrations. So what are you writing now? Um, well, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still toying with the idea of, of the grandma yeah. sort of little. Well, not I shouldn't say little series, um, because I'm getting lots of stuff from my grandchildren, mm. and yeah, I'm, I'm fiddling around with that. I I did some. I thought they were good rhyming word type um, stories. But we're not allowed to do rhyming word stories now. That's uh, somewhere in the publishing world. Somebody says we're not doing any more horror, and bang, that all stops. Or we're not doing um, rhyming poetry in books. So okay. So like Harry McClary at Donaldson's yeah, Dairy wouldn't that, sell no, now. No. Why? But because somebody said we're not doing it. So um, and that goes right across the, the whole thing. So even if it's good and it's funny, you won't find very many rhyming poetry books being published. So I wrote a, a few few rhyming that's very, poetry. I think that's quite sad. Well, yeah, but that's it'll come back again yeah, when yeah. somebody comes up to a meeting and says, "I've got a bright idea. Why don't we do rhyming poetry books?" <laughs> um, and this is, I think, how it works. Um, I'm not a publisher. I don't know, but I think they won't. A lot of them won't take risks now. So. Rhyming poetry might come back again. That that would be, I think, really good. That would be could. great. I do too. Yeah. So um, I've been doing a bit of that, just being in absolute defiance because I love um, Harry McClary. There's another book, oh, yeah. my, uh, Widows Living in My Neighbourhood, and I think that's one of the cleverest books. And the uh, English still do a bit of it. Um, and I think that's really, really clever. Um, yeah, so for fun I'll do I'm still a rebel. I still want to buck the system. I still want to do stuff you're not supposed to do. And I wrote one. It was all about puns. This little kid 
wants to leave school and get a job and so he goes to work at his um, grandma's bakery um, and the dough's poor and the, like there's all these oh. jokes about <laughs> baking cakes and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and he goes on and on and whatever and sort of, I sent it away and sort of they weren't very interested. So either I've lost I've lost the plot or it's too early for... for well, perhaps for you're being prescient again, Margaret, and you're ahead of your time. Don't know. As you've been so often with your other books. So we've got our Grandma series. We've got... Um, I'm writing a, a... I'm actually writing for adults at the moment just right. to give that a go. I was going to ask you that. Hmm, Have you considered of. writing for sort of more of the adult market? Well, I did one called The Females, which was a book for adults, which was based on my daughter, Fee, overseas and sending emails. There was The Females and <sighs> um, a play on words again. And, yeah, that, that went all right, but I wasn't able to market it very well at the time because I couldn't do two. My dad was very ill and I had right. to stay here. Right. Um, and I just didn't have the energy to put into the marketing when I had an ill parent. All my energy was going into my... My dad. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all sorts of different things. And I really, yeah, I, I really need to get my grandma stuff going. Um, I'd like, she's got to be some wacky sort of grandma. And I started making her a spy and then I didn't know whether I wanted her to be a spy. So then I sort of changed my, I'm still. Still feeling your way with that one. I'm still playing around with right. the grandma. I like the idea of her being a bit wacko and a, mm. a spy or a, mm. um, a secret agent or something the kids think she is different. Or, or she has them helping her. Now, is this a, 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 a primary school age mm. book again? So a picture book or a... No, no, a chapter just a, book. Just a chapter book, a, a short A chapter book illustrated like about... No, well, I didn't think so. It was more going to be, I'm trying to think, maybe about the chickabee size sort of thing. Right, this sort of... Um, or oh, a bit bigger than fast bit, grandma. Big, yeah, a bit bigger than that because that's more like the uh, yeah, more like murder on the ghoul bus. Yes, more like that size. size. <laughs> Only we won't have a murdering grandma, I don't think. Do you um, find? I always think it's so interesting how children love, you know, gore and horror and mm. uh, you know, death and that sort of thing. Um, when you go to schools, you still go to schools and do talks. Oh. I do a few, but not as many as I used to. You've got to remember I'm getting older now. I get tired. Oh, I never get old. <laughs> I can't fly up to Sydney and do three talks in a day and get up oh. the next day and fly to Brisbane and do three talks in a day. You and used to up. do that? Wow. I used to be on the road all the time. Well, we've actually got here some of the wonderful things you used to take into schools, or you probably still do. Um, I love this. So the, the handwritten rough draft. Mm. Which and used to happen. It doesn't now go straight on the computer. Oh, go straight to the computer. You don't oh, write by well, hand. Oh, well, I might be taking some rough notes if I'm sitting somewhere. It depends. Yeah. If I'm sitting having a cup of tea somewhere and I see something interesting, I'll drag out the napkin and start writing. Right. I mean, you know, or, of course, we've got phones now, but then they think you're a, you know, I might call the police if they think you're sort of doing something suspicious and on your phone and watching yeah. people. <laughs> So we have the handwritten rough draft, which may be handwritten or computer, and then we get the original manuscript. This is what you submit to the publisher? Yes, except now it can go off on an e just As an email, yeah. yeah, yeah. The days of actually packaging up a, yeah, you don't actually a physical manuscript and posting it are gone. No. So that's always so very interesting. It's interesting. The history of the thing's interesting, I think, and that's what, you know, is that the one that's all been edited? This and- is the edited manuscript. Yes. Now, is this after you've had your commentary from your... Um, publisher from That's your editor? That's when, when he's bought this... it. That was Mark McLeod in the big chocolate bar and he'd bought it and I'd written this great long sentence there, something like, oh, he woke feeling, where it is, somewhere here. Um, where is it? Oh, I've... I struggled to start fighting the waves of dizziness which threatened to overcome me yet again as the shock of the whole episode had been too much. Oh. He crossed the door, he wrote, he wrote, I felt dizzy. So <laughs> what he was trying to teach me was, um, you know, you, brevity. You're taught you can, in school to use lots of adjectives and great descriptive passages and um, long sentences and all this stuff. And really, I needed three words to describe all that, which was I felt dizzy. Yeah. So then you have to unlearn what you did learn in school because they're teaching you to expand yourself and all the rest of it. But you need actually to you, you learn to do. 
you learn automatically to write a short sentence like that and then a long sentence then maybe two short sentences mm. then a longer. You'd learn to um, mix it up. Mix it up and you learn whole lots of stuff and a really good editor teaches you all that. When I got that back in the mail, I nearly died when I saw all that black crossing out. Oh, and, oh but I just sat down there and fixed and it. And you work your way through it. So how important is a good editor? I think vitally important. Now, some people might argue that it's not, but I think they can they can see beyond what you're writing. They, they can tighten it up and and make it a better novel. Mm. Um, and some people might argue about that, but if you if you if you're on the wavelength with them and you work together, um, I just think it's essential. I just found. I only ever argued a couple of times about something that was really important to me. Yes. But the rest of the time they were usually right. They knew what they were talking about. So, um, yeah, they can they can see where – one big problem is when you're an author is, if you're like me, you see it all in your head happening. Yeah. You're in it, but it's, it's like a movie going along and you're in the movie yep. and you're writing yeah. it down. So often you can see it, but you don't put enough down on the page to let people know what's going on. Yep. Um, and people are saying, "Hang on, what's 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 the tape? What's the room look like?" Mm, so yep. if we were here writing about this as you and I talking, and we could say, oh, "Yeah," well, but people want a bit of a description of what's around us. Obviously, visually you can see that, but when you've written the word, you can't. So yeah. again, you come to this. The whole thing about writing is a balance. Because you need enough um, description that the person has a sense of where they are, what's happening, who's doing what. But on the other hand, you don't want to spell it all out so that they don't have any room for their own imagination. So I used to say to to, um, classes in school, I'm going to read you this. Okay, you read out the passage. Righto, what colour hair's the person? And they don't know because... I haven't said. Yeah. So somebody says it's definitely someone with red hair and green eyes and it's somebody else. And they've picked somebody they know that follows those characteristics in right. their life somewhere and stuck them in the story because that's how we do it. And that's why I explain, well, I, sometimes I don't put great big explanations about what people look like, um, but I want their characterization, what they're actually doing. Well, that comes through very more. strongly. Yeah, um, that's yeah. where I need an editor too because sometimes it's important that I say, yeah, that you know, they've got green flashing eyes or whatever. Yeah, they yeah, have. yeah, tall or thin or yeah, or, sometimes uh, because yeah. that might be important that's to the right. person's visualization of the story. So, are you writing um, more adult fiction? Is that what you're writing now? I'm writing a, a mixture of stuff. Okay, like I said, I've done these picture books that are sort of rhyming poetry. Although I could unrhyme them, they'd probably sell, wouldn't they? If I wasn't so defined. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then I'm writing like the grandma stuff's happening. Yep, yep. I've re- already written uh, half of a book, but I'm not sure that I. <sighs> the moral guardians are my problem. Are they going to let a grandma go roaring around the place and sort of? Well, I don't see why not. I would have thought more than ever now with the aging, you know, the baby boomer population, and they're all doing exactly that anyway. The grandparents of, of, of today's generation are. They're not up roofs looking for spies, though, are they, with the kid? Well, I think you're the author. Can't you make up whatever you I want? I am. That's what I'm doing. Are you still with the same publishers or are you with – well? Yeah. I'm still thinking about how to, how define to make the grandma. How? <laughs> well, I think she should be pretty feisty. She should be like you, shouldn't she? Probably. Aren't you the grandma? Yeah. So I think nothing wrong with that, Margaret. Yeah, I just – I guess, okay, <sighs> there's the part of the grandma, me, who wants to do all these crazy things and go out to explore. Like, okay, when when the kids would come, we'd go to the pizza place in the park. Yeah. Because I lived near a pizza place. In the park. Anyway, so it's pizza in the park in the dark, and that was the big adventure. And then when it poured rain, we sat, there was a train in the park. So it was pizza in the park, in the dark, in the train, in the rain. And that all became like what you do when you go to grandma's house. 
Then we'd go down the secret lane, which was just a lane behind yeah. some houses, yeah. and find stuff. It was all exciting. What could we find? Oh, there was an old chair. Somebody, oh, my goodness, someone's thrown out a chair. Oh, a tennis ball, you know. Oh, I found 20 cents. Oh, my gosh, I found 20 cents. It must be a magic 20 cents. <laughs> so they've got this crazy grandma who's doing adventures all the time. And then now they're older, the adventures have to be, I guess, bolder, like, as I said, yeah. being a spy and on a roof and trying not to fall through a skylight of a warehouse while someone's chop-shopping up a beamer or something. And and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm losing it. Maybe I am going to. Maybe I am inappropriate, Grandma. <laughs> so there's this, yeah, there's this juxtaposition. Well, I think perhaps you should just write them and see what comes out. Yeah, and then not have what you've to always the kids done. and they go, oh, Grandma, you can't do that. You can't say that. <laughs> Okay, I won't show you. Actually, that's very interesting. You've just put me on the right track because when I wrote Pudwall, yeah, uh, it was about my son <laughs> and my daughter, in essence. Yeah, and um, I I started writing, and the the kids said to me, "Oh, they were what fifteen and thirteen or something. What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm writing a book." And they said, "Oh, what's it about?" I said, "You, us, our family." And they said, "You can't do that. Everyone's <laughs> going to know our secrets." And then I heard. Fiona say to Stuart, oh, don't worry about it. Let her go. While she's doing that, she's out of our face and off our case and who's going to publish it anyway? No one's <laughs> going to publish it. Like, Mum. Oh, <laughs> Margaret, and how. So maybe I've gone back to, yeah, yeah. I've done a circle. Yes, I think so. Oh, well, that goodness. makes sense. I'm going to go home and start Th- grandmaring. Yes, 30 years on and, you know, they were wrong and here's Pugwall and still going and it's marvellous. Yeah, and they were sort of, you know, when I drop dead, they'll get the royalties. They keep oh. saying, how are you? <laughs> how are you feeling? <laughs> well, on that note, Margaret, oh, it's been wonderful having you here in the book cave. Thank you. Thank you. But we always ask our book cave guests the one important question at the end of every interview, which is, would you tell us the names of the three books that you're going to donate to our virtual time capsule, our book cave book bin, that you're going to leave to the world to be read a thousand years from now? Okay. What are your three books? Well, I was going Margaret? to leave my own, but I thought, gee, this is a little <laughs> bit... Um... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit up myself. Um, well, you might think that they are the great no. the books that the world should be reading a I thousand years from now. No, I'm, I, I want to leave these three particular books that I brought with me um, for special reasons. And great. I've got them here. Well, yes, please show. We'd love right, to see well, them. The first one, and they're all Australian actually, because I thought, why would I want to leave? No, I do love some other books. Lots of other books from yeah. other countries, but no. Um, so my my very good friend, my wonderful friend Jackie French, who's oh, written yeah. Dora of a Wombat, I really think that's very important for the future to be reading because what the heck is a wombat they're going to want to know? What did the wombat do? What did it eat? Um, and this is one of the best-selling books in Australia for it's gone overseas. It's been sold in lots of different countries. It's read all over the world. Um, and then she's written follow-ups. But to me, it was a really important, really important book that's lighthearted and funny and saving wombats because she's a passionate wombat saver. Yes, my favourite animal. Is it? Yes, I love wombats. Well, Jackie's kind of a bit, sorry, Jackie, if you're listening, Jackie's a bit like a wombat where she goes flat out at a million miles an hour and then jams to a halt. You know how they run? Yes, yes. And then, bang, they slam on the brakes and they sort of, yeah, she used to be a sort of a slight wombat shape, sort of round. Now she's not. She wouldn't mind. She'd be happy to be compared to a wombat. She's one of my very dearest friends um, and very, very clever writer and works very, very, very hard. So... That's going in our in our in our virtual bin. time capsule. Diary of a Wombat by Jackie French. Okay, that's a fairly modern book. I think it came out. I don't know, five, ten years ago. I can't remember. Would be on the cover there somewhere. Whether it's published. Yeah. Angus uh, and Robertson, two thousand and two originally, uh, fifteen years ago. But this one was published in twenty thirteen. Yeah, because it's had a lot of republishing. Yeah, that's right. Right. Now we're going to a very old one, ah. The Magic Pudding, which I loved as a kid. Yeah. And Australian by Norman Lindsay. Oh, Again, the, the Australian animals. And I think it'd be interesting too for the people in the time capsule to be comparing the wombat in here, the 
possums, everything else with, with that one, because this is a very old book. Yes. A brilliant sense of humour. And it smells old. If, if you sniff it, it smells very Beautiful. old. Because it is. There's and a, a great story. There's a koala sitting there. Yes. And it smells. So that was mine when I was a child. Beautiful. No, it wasn't. It was my mother's. Oh, my goodness. Good League of Bird Lovers, third prize to oh. Edna Yeoman in oh. 1931. That's oh. my mum. It's fabulous. And then I have a modern one that's a teenage one that's for boys because I thought we'd better sort of. Yep. Now, this one's important to me because it was written by a local man. He was a school teacher in Geelong and he was busting to be an author and finally cracked it and finally someone uh, bought this book, uh, published this book. Um, I'm trying to remember who did publish it now. And he signed it to me and all that. Um, Lothian. So Lothian was actually putting out a lot of local books, mm -hmm. well, Australian books, but it was gave him his break. Um, and it's a, a boy book about playing cricket and all this, the um, teenage Relationships jargon. and things, yeah. Uh, he was brilliant teacher, brilliant English teacher, and sadly he's passed away since then, so I think it's important for me to donate this book in memory of um, John Drake. Wonderful. The fourth test, John Drake. So there we are. We've got a three very divergent books. We certainly do. And the mm. magic, the wonderful magic pudding. Mm. Marvellous. Illustrated by Norman Lindsay. Yes. Being the adventures of Bunyip Bluegum and his friends Bill Barnacle and Sam Sornoff. <laughs> and definitely worth reading. Great Australian literature. You couldn't get three more divergent books. No, could you, you couldn't, but aren't they wonderful? The kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, Margaret, it's been wonderful having you in the book cave. Thank you so much for being our guest. The inimitable Margaret Clark, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, and thanks especially for having me and asking such very good questions. Been our pleasure. Thank you, Margaret Clark. In the book cave was recorded at the Mance with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.